Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. Hi, I'm Allie. And I am Boomer. And since this is the first episode we've recorded since the SCOTUS leak of the overturn of Roe v. Wade that's imminent in America, I'm not going to talk about who we are so much as just upfront saying, uh, if you could donate to the New Orleans Abortion Fund, I'm going to put the link to their donation button in the show notes today. Louisiana has a trigger law for when that does get repealed. Uh, it's going to become increasingly difficult for people in the state to get an abortion, and they are still funding and facilitating that for people who need that resource. I know there's been a lot of talk online lately about not wanting to give to the Democratic Party, who is pushing for donations in the time of this ban being imminent. I don't know. Check your local abortion funds. I'm sure Boomer and Alley all live in different states than me right now. I'm sure there are other funds y'all could throw out there that could use some money as well. But NOAF does good work, and they're committed to pushing through this you know, nightmare time that we're going through right now. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the main one I would say as well, because I don't know, I live in a state where it's pretty much written into our state law that you can't do that up here. We are abortion friendly. No, pro-choice friendly. Sorry, that sounded very <laughs> flippant. I don't know. I'm pro-abortion. I don't need to put it in like a pro-choice kind of narrative. I think they're good and they help people and save lives. It's true. They do help people. They save lives. And you know what? Fuck it. Somebody get one if they want one. Yeah. Look into your local resources. Even if you are unable to donate money, there are options to donate your time in order to protect uh, women's reproductive health. I know that there are organizations in Texas and Louisiana where they are making it easier for you to reach out directly to someone in your community who can rush you plan B. I, you know, was raised in an extremely fundamentalist environment. And so I am completely unable to have conversations with my friends back home. Well, not my friends, but my family about the reasonability and rationality because they have all been sort of brain poisoned by the fundamentalist agenda for their whole lives. And in many ways, you know, there are people online now talking about how someone who is like a, ch uh, was as a child, the, or I guess still is the child of like a family friend of the Thomases and how within those homes, they are not pro-life in the sense that they are seeking to save the lives of any babies or fetuses. They laugh and mock with open contempt the people who will die as a result of this. People whose fertilized cells will not attach in the right way. Fuel cells that will, will die soon and become septic and ultimately threaten the life of the person who you know has those fertilized cells within their body or those unfertilized cells within their body those people are in the eyes of the extremists on the supreme court people who deserve to die for not keeping their legs together and i know that as much as the people who are in my family who consider themselves to be pro-life, but who are anti-choice, consider themselves to be acting on what they think to be the will of God, they also have within them a contempt for 
women, a contempt for women and a contempt for people capable of bearing children who choose not to or for whom it is an endangerment to their life. They think that they deserve to die. And no matter where you fall on that spectrum, you have to recognize that that's a truly fundamentally wicked and evil way to think. Also want to point out that uh, vasectomies are pretty available readily and uh, very harmless. So just throwing that out there for people who uh, that applies to. I am one of those people and I have been considering it for several years now. Um, for various personal reasons, and uh, the thinking about it has been accelerating to, I wonder if my insurance covers this. I need to look into that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, in that I'm in that stage yeah. right now. I feel like, you know, once all of this goes down, I think a lot of funds should probably switch to uh, paying for that for people, too. It is uh, time to start thinking practically about things like this, because we do talk a lot about, like, evangelical stuff on this podcast, for various different reasons, especially as Boomer was just saying, because you have a personal connection to that world. But it does increasingly feel just relevant to daily life because of how this country is governed. Um, so I don't think that topic's going to go away anytime soon. And I feel sort of vindicated in how um, nasty I've been about it in my personal thinking. <laughs> uh, and I just get anger and anger. Uh, I've been doing a lot of doom scrolling lately. I don't know how y'all have been with that, but uh, I've been online too much yeah. in the past week. So basically, you know, sorry to like bring this down even more, but my cat died on the 30th and I had no idea any of this politically was happening because I was dealing with Morning. being like absolutely devastated. And then once I got back into reality, it was like, suddenly this was everything I was seeing. And it's like, oh my god, <laughs> like, it's just a doom. Well, this is going to sound like a really trivial question, because I know you are hurting right now. <laughs> um, have you been watching movies while you've been mourning and doom scrolling? Uh, you know, I have watched a few movies. I've watched a couple movies, uh, mainly because I had the DVDs from the library and I needed to return them. But in between... Being able to watch movies and doom scrolling, I did rewatch season two of Bridgerton, so it holds up the second time in case anybody needs a friendly escape from the doom scrolling. But I finally got around to watching Devil's Backbone. For the first time? Yeah, for the first time, actually. You know, the Kronos podcast, y'all were like, yeah, you would like it. I did like it. I really enjoyed it. And, like, there's so many, like, instances and, like, just scenes in it that are so, like, visually striking and gorgeous. And I know it's a little more, like, grounded than Pan's Labyrinth, but it still manages to, like, have that fantastical, like, element to it, which was, like, super interesting to see, like, coming off the tales of, like, Kronos and a bunch of other stuff to, like, go back to this Spanish Civil War area, and it's, like devastating but also you know straight up right away there's a ghost ghost is real and i think i really like that about his movies is it's like there's no time wasted in being like this movie has a supernatural element it's great i don't know i just there's something about that that i just appreciate i mean i love ambiance and all of that but yeah there's just something so nice about being like yep there's a ghost 
that's real. It might feel so matter-of-fact because it's so traditional in some ways. Yeah. It feels like the kind of ghost story that you read in, like, a collection of, like, classic tales of ghost visitations. Yeah. It it feels like a very, like, ancient story, even though um, a lot of the stuff is original. It's all very traditional at the same time. And also, you know, because of a lot of, like, the words and the translations... He just, like, straight up threw in so many, like, Suspiria references in it, and I love that movie, so I'm also going to appreciate that. Just right down to calling the ghost, the one who sighs, the El Suspirio. <laughs> it's like, that's great. Thanks, Del Toro. The man loves movies. He's a big nerd, and it's great. And the other movie I watched, Boomer will appreciate that I did finally rewatch, uh, Scream. Oh, tell me how you feel. I really, really enjoyed it. It It's a lot of fun. I like how self-aware it is and just how much fun Wes Craven is poking at himself, like, constantly. You know, I thought it was also just such a great time capsule. There's just so many, so many cultural references. And it's like, oh, man, I would love to show this to, like, someone who didn't live through these things and just... Have them be like, wait, what? Excuse me, huh? That's kind of fun. I also think, you know, there's a movie, like, name dropped at least one in, like, every scene. I think it would be kind of fun to just go through and watch all of those. <laughs> just every single movie named in Scream. Like a long-term project? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them are just, like, your straightforward classics. Halloween, Psycho, Nightmare on Elm Street. That's what I loved about that movie when I was a kid, though, because I hadn't seen any of those movies yet. This was, like, one of the first, like, big horror movies I fell in love with just because I was, you know, 10 when it came out. So uh, it was like a roadmap to, frankly, better films. Even though I really like Scream, it was just like, here's, like, every classic horror movie that you need to, like, catch up. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I've since done a lot of that over the years but I, probably the first time i ever heard most of those titles was in scream i, I would agree valuable for that i yeah. wouldn't necessarily say that the things that it points to are better than scream there are certainly a lot of them which are not but i i feel the same way that it was also like a key to this map you know and that yeah. it showed you where to go looking for the treasure and a lot of non-treasure too but you know that's <laughs> that's what the genre is I thought it was uh, funny very early on to like throw shade at the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, even though I love them. <laughs> yeah. They're great. Yeah. And especially because the most recent one at the time was it's Wes Craven's Scream. Scream Nightmare, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is very similar to Scream, and I would also say is very good. I wouldn't personally say better because I feel like they exist in different spheres. Like I wouldn't compare a Freddy movie to like Silence of the Lambs, even though they're both horror movies. Like they exist. Another in movie realms that was name dropped. <laughs> yeah. Scream. It's you know it's apples and oranges. It's it's like trying to compare uh, Choose or Die that just came out on Netflix to. Sleepaway Camp, like they're different things. Like they, uh, in that case, Sleepaway Camp is definitely better, but also they're incomparable in as far as their specifics. It's just like the meta commentary stuff. I mean, I'm saying this as someone who saw New Nightmare like way later in life, but like, I just found the way it talks about horror and what horror does as like a um, extension of like the cultural psyche 
to be like really interesting. Yeah. And then like Scream is more about the roadmap of tropes and building blocks of like what makes horror and what classics define that canon, which feels kind of more surface level as I get older. It's like a list of citations and not like actually engaging with the like philosophical stuff under- underneath that surface as much. I understand what you're saying. And the way that you're conceptualizing it is, I think, like where my biggest disagreement is insofar as like, I think that Scream is just like, are you more of a systems thinker? Then Scream is going to be more up your alley because what you're calling it is like the roadmap and, and the tropes. If you're someone who, for whom systems thinking and the, you know, you interpret art in that way, or that's part of the way that you interact with objet d'art, that is going to color your perception and in a way that's more positive than yours is, because you're looking at it as breaking it down, or I'm perceiving that you're looking at it as breaking it down to core elements in a way that diminishes them whereas to me it's like you know like a horror genome project where it's like oh god they should have sent a poet you know when you look at it all laid out that way to me it's funny when you say poet because i was just thinking like yeah i'm not a systems thinker i went to college for a poetry I pivoted into like thinking about movies more than poetry and i'm always like looking at movies for that like sort of transcendent harder to find surrealism probably on my mind too because of what i picked for us to watch today but uh fair enough (laughs) that sort of like transcendence and like break from reality is like more of what i'm looking for out of movies so yeah the new nightmare version of that meta commentary would speak more to me but i guess anytime you say something's better you're never really saying anything objective about quality you're just like to me it is better you're just kind of cutting out that like middleman of like in my personal opinion no, everything is empirical. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Says a systems thinker. I this guess. is an empirical. <laughs> this is an empirical film discussion podcast. Yeah, everything oh, man, we I say is right either show. right or wrong. <laughs> Maybe mostly wrong. I don't know. I'm not a systems thinker. I just like things. But you liked it. I did like it. I had fun with it. <laughs> Good enough for me. I like it too. It's good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that we've beaten you down. Yeah. Uh, Boomer, in between your doom scrolling, uh, what have you been watching? Well, I just watched and in the other case rewatched our two most recent slash upcoming movies of the month. Um, I just want to go ahead and say that I really loved The Music Lovers, just in case that wasn't completely clear from... My writing of it, which I I assume it's uh, gone up, right? Not yet. I'm still waiting for Brittany to bring it home. <laughs> we're, we're very close to it. That's fair. Fair enough. But when it comes out, I, I hope that I effectively said like how much I, I loved it. I really liked Anna's uh, prompt that she sent to me this time. It gave me a lot of room to get into it, even though, as I said there, you know, rumors of my like Ken Russell knowledge are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> Um, although I did acquire Lair of the White Worm, um, oh, classic. but have not watched it or rewatched it, I guess, technically since. But in a semantically similar title to Lair of the White Worm, I also rewatched Embrace of the Serpent and loved it even more this time around. 
In fact, by the time I sent off the prompt, it had reached 1,700 words as far as like introduction and like discussion of how it exists sort of as a movie about an apocalypse, not one that comes from above, but one that has already happened, at least to the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere. And I feel like I should probably wait and find out, but I'm going to ask now, was it well received in the viewing room? I'm going to break your heart and tell you that no one has watched it yet because I had a water heater emergency. Oh, no. So I had to cancel the screening. Okay. I basically had to put a lot of stuff on hold this past week for like several different reasons. Understandable. So movie of the month is lagging right now, uh, but I will catch back up. We will get back on schedule someday. The whole thing's been kind of like off rhythm for like a half month for a while. And it's it's my fault. It's because I had a really hard time. Um, getting copy on I Declare War um, and then learned I really shouldn't have bothered trying that hard. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I didn't quit yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I have been looking forward to watching Embrace of the Serpent for a long time. When When the Broad Street Theater opened in my neighborhood, that was like the first big movie they played, like opening weekend. Uh, I missed it for one reason or another back then. Uh, on the big screen, um, and I've just been kind of like waiting for a prompt to watch it. So I very much appreciate the selection. I'm excited to see it. It's a really beautiful movie. It's one, it's also harrowing. There's something that's really, truly unique and magnificent about it. And I I can't wait to hear everyone's thoughts, as long as they're positive. No, I'm just kidding. Or else. Or else. <laughs> uh, I also have been playing catch up with y'all. So within the past week, I've seen both The Batman and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Ooh. Oh, you went nice. to the movies? I did. I went. Nice. I, I chanced it and went to the movies. I watched The Batman at home, uh, which is the way to watch it. Matt and I had talked about going to see it at the drive-in, but it's nice to be able to pause and take a bathroom break during a three-hour movie i'm not opposed to movies being three hours long i know that that's the uh, it's that's the minority report among this trio but (laughs) for me i don't care if a movie is four hours long but i do think that there should be an intermission see i was gonna say i'm not i'm not opposed to long movies i just prefer watching them at home because i can pause them and get snacks yeah, I get really annoyed when I go see Indian films in the theater, and there is a title card for intermission. Like it's built into the structure of the film, but when they play Indian cinema in America, the title card comes up, and then they put on the next reel immediately. Like they don't actually build in a ten minute no. break. And it's like, Boo. no, I needed that. <laughs> boo, boo, Who do you and think boo we again. Are? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we can really hold our bladders that long? I have been saying so long that if theaters were to bring back intermission, they would make so much money on concessions. I don't understand. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure that's true. I think that we, and maybe this is my like biased perspective because of where I live and the like abundance of Alamo draft houses, but there's even like in New Orleans, there's the, I think it's the Canal Street Theater that has like table service. Yeah, uh, Britannia bought them recently, too, so they're back open again. Okay, and like movie taverns? See, I hate those. (laughs) (laughs) I hate them, too. 
I used to work at the one at Canal Place in the kitchen, um, and I always thought that it was like super distracting. I was just like, you live in a city where there are like a thousand amazing restaurants within like five blocks of this place. Why are you eating overpriced salad at a movie theater? <laughs> yeah, I would never order the salad at the Alamo Draft House um, personally. But you make it sound like that's like real sketchy. I would never order that salad. No, I like, just no, you know, no. <laughs> I don't. I don't often eat salads out unless I yeah. didn't plan to eat out. Simply because, like, for me, I grew up, you know, in a family that was very spendthrift. And it's hard for me to justify paying any amount of money for a salad out in, yep. outside of my house. Same. It's lettuce. Like, I can go down to the grocery store <laughs> and get a head of lettuce for, like, $2 and a Just carrot bring for it 37 to the theater cents. and start munching. Yeah. So, you know... To me, and this was an argument I used to see a lot, uh, especially in like uh, international film discussion communities, where there was always someone commenting like, oh, why can't Americans sit through an entire movie without stuffing their faces? Oh, fat American blah, blah, nonsense. And it's like, you know, for some people, that's that's just the way that they go out. Especially if you're getting a babysitter and you have like three hours to like get a experience yeah. in and you have to like rush back home it's not a fucking crime to want to put milk duds in your mouth while you're watching star <laughs> wars or solo a star wars story like i need my red vines oh wow red vines yeah this is a red vines house you bring them from home though right uh depends on the theater uh here the hollywood theater has surprisingly good red vines i don't know what they do if they like store them well or what but I always get them and they're like, perfect. And then, you know, I get myself like a beer and then I put the red vine in the beer and I drink it and it's great. <laughs> it's happiness. I mean, the theaters need that money. Like they yeah. make yeah, most of their money off of That's where their money comes from. Yeah. But I also don't think I could afford this hobby if I ate every single time yeah. I went to the theater because I go a lot. And yeah. the food's expensive. And so. as you all know, I haven't been to the movies in like two years, so. In the yeah, in the halcyon days of Movie Pass, where I was going to the movies for like you know five dollars a month or ten dollars or however much it was, it's been so long ago now. But I would be like, hell yeah, I'm gonna go to see you know I'm gonna go to fifteen movies and I can spend like I can buy a Dr Pepper every time. That relationship with Movie Pass did nothing but benefit the theaters, at least when it came oh, to yeah. me. Because, and I mean, I had a, we talked about my scam, right? Uh, you would buy tickets for one movie and then go into the other, I'm guessing? I, well, I don't know what kind of scam. It was classic. more like, okay, so the way that the draft house works, especially when they're doing specialty shows, like if they were going to be doing uh, Weird Wednesday or Terror Tuesday, you can't wait until the day of to buy those tickets. They're going to sell out. So what I would do was always know what the next movie I was going to see would be. So let's say I was there to see Tammy and the T-Rex for Weird Wednesday. I would have already bought that ticket. And then when I got to the theater, I would check in for that movie, which would activate the movie pass. And then I would just <laughs> buy the ticket for the next thing that I wanted to see. Okay. So it was, they got their money. Everybody got their money. It just meant that movie passes restriction that prevented you from buying a ticket until the day of. That was just how I got around it. I'm still benefiting from the AMC subscription service right now. I'm back on that. When I go to movies, it's always it's the small 
small theaters here um, unless, you know, I'm going to like a big movie for who knows what reason. In which case, I'm going to go way out to the suburbs and I'm going to get to the movie theater with the reclining seats. Treat myself. That is the crime of it is that like AMC is further away from my house. There's like a the broad is like right where I live. It's very cool. They play like great indie stuff. But like it's so much more affordable to, for me to go out of my way to the big mega corporate place. Yeah. And uh, I can't afford to have scruples about that. Yeah, uh, it's fair. But Elmwood does have 20 screens, so they play like just as much artsy fartsy stuff. Oh, I was going like, to say, yeah, Elmwood does does do that. I remember those Elmwood days. <laughs> and that's where all those um, Indian movies play with the uh, fake intermissions are all out at Elmwood. No other theater in town's playing them. I will say, you know, while we, I know we're talking about the theater going experience uh, and we're talking about, you know, how much I love and Ali is generally pro and you are anti three hour movies. <laughs> They're fine. Yeah, I... There was a point in the Batman right in the middle where I was like, oof, I'm very tired. (laughs) And, you know, I watched it with Matt and we were telling Kat about it and talking about how, you know, she was like, I don't care. The market's oversaturated with Batman. This could be the best Batman ever made. And I still won't see it and don't care because it's too much. And sort of as a theoretical exercise while i was watching the movie a lot of times i would just stop and be like okay did this have to be a batman story like did this particular story have to be like a superhero or a comic book adaptation in order for it to work and i think maybe a little bit you know it would be weird if it were just a movie about a vigilante who was not dressed like a bat going after, (laughs) you know, QAnon Zodiac killer. But like, I don't know. It seemed to be trying really hard to do a kind of like, oh, who's the real evil here? Uh, Because it is kind of one of the frequent criticisms of, or the frequent like modern criticisms of of the Batman, like narratives is that Batman is, you know a fascist like he goes around and he punches criminals who are poor people he's you know for the the people who are goons for the penguin aren't doing it because like they would rather do that than have a nice cushy office job working for like some wayne tech startup right they're doing it out of desperation and i guess this movie tried to push against that by sort of doing more of like oh Actually, the Waynes tried to use their money to save Gotham, and it didn't work. But the reason it didn't work is because, like, Bruce was too busy playing, like, dress-up Bat-Boy, you know, (laughs) to, like, actually manage the finances of this, like, organization that his parents created to try and actually wipe out the causes of poverty. It had its cake, and it ate it, too. And while I thought the mystery was great, I don't understand why we've got Colin Farrell in a fat suit. I don't understand why they did it with Jared Leto in the Gucci movie or whatever the hell it was. Oh, it was hilarious in that case, though. He was entertaining. (laughs) He was the only good thing about that movie. You know, they're ugly people. Yeah. Like, they're ugly people. (laughs) You know, I'd love a job. I'd love love to play (laughs) the Penguin. You know, like, there are ugly people in the world. You don't have to go get, like, Colin Farrell, who does it for people. And just put him under a bunch of prosthetics until he's unrecognizable. That's not art. 
that's gimmicky. And I think that we all need to stop tolerating it. I remember a couple years ago, I was over at uh, a friend's house and we were watching Christine, the John Carpenter movie, which is, you know, very beautifully shot, but is, is so boring. And the guy who runs the like junkyard in Christine, it, at one point, my friend was like, they would never let a man that ugly be in a movie now. And he's right. And yeah, he wasn't even like, you know, Quasimodo. older movies. <laughs> that looks like a normal person. What happened? Why don't we have normal people? There were like so many things that conceptually annoy me about that movie. If I think about them in the abstract, I'm just thinking about you talking about Colin Farrell and like there's that scene like 90 minutes in, like halfway into the movie where the penguin finally waddles. And like this is like long setup to justify why he would waddle. Well, yeah, I didn't even realize that that was what was happening until you literally just told me that. It's when they okay, <laughs> yeah, they like tie his legs together and he starts yeah. waddling. Yeah, he starts waddling. And it's yeah. like, so this is where we're at now. You need ninety minutes of like exposition to make it like real that the penguin would waddle for like a half second joke. Where like if Joel Schumacher was making this movie, he'd have a fucking beak, you know. Like, <laughs> That kind of stuff's easy for me to get, like, mad about in the abstract, but, like, watching the movie, I enjoyed it, and it's just, like, it's hard for me not to imprint what I would want it to be onto it, but in practice, what it is, it's done well, I guess is what I would say. It's not the Batman movie I would make, obviously, because I want Batman to be very silly and very horny, and this this movie's a more, like, smoldering, romantic kind of horny in, like, a uh, dejected goth kid kind of way. I did enjoy Battenson. I was not expecting to. I was going to be like, ugh. But I, I did actually enjoy the Battenson. What about Zoe Catfish? I liked their romance. Yeah, I thought I did it was too. like actually sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I could, the part where I was getting bored was there's the back to back scene where uh, Torturo is fantastic in this. I oh, actually yeah. think that Torturo is, the, is giving the best performance. It's not the one that anyone is talking about. But I'm so happy to see him doing, like, I know that this is a dumb, like, comic book action movie. I know that it thinks it's smarter than it is, but let's be real. It's a dumb comic book action movie. And that's fine. Uh, if you, if you want to, like, <laughs> tear into me, dear listener, about that, please go ahead and actually look at all of the star ratings that I give to these big, dumb comic book action <laughs> movies. Like, don't tear into him. Tear into me. <laughs> I'll stand in your place. Because this was just me watching it because I didn't want to think about things. So <laughs> I just want to say, Turturro is giving a great performance. And after years of like him being in the Transformers movies where his lines are like, I'm directly beneath the enemy's scrotum, are like, this is such a, a wonderful change to see him getting to do something. It's not fucking Barton Fink. But, you know, nothing ever is. It's better yeah. than Dark of the Moon. <laughs> You know, um, and almost anything is the scene where Bruce goes to talk to Falcone, and it's just like I, I, I kind of had like I started to zone out, like I really did not care <laughs> about what was happening there. And I, I know that the film wants us to, and I know that there are probably going to be people who are like, "Oh my god, how could you not care? It was so blah 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 and whatever." But then it was immediately followed by like Bruce at. Andy Circus Alfred's bedside. And I was like, God, I really don't give a shit about this either. Like, 
There's there were whole sections of this movie where I was like, I just really don't care about what's happening. And that doesn't make it a criticism where I'm like, this movie should be shorter or this movie should be different. I'm just saying, like, there are so many big portions of it where I'm actually a little surprised to like when I think about it, like, oh, we are supposed to care what's happening right now. And I just really, really don't. But that freeway chase is pretty cool. Lots of explosions. It had a lot uh, at the end of it, I was like, there are so many people dead in that. Yeah. yeah. Dead that and dismembered. <laughs> um, but Brandon, you saw everything everywhere all at once, right? Yeah. I would say that one and RRR are like the two best movies of the year so far, without question. The, the only three, the only movies that I've seen that are new releases that I saw in a semi-theatrical environment like that were theatrical releases are five cream uh hot twink spider-man too many spider-men and Mm -hmm. uh everything everywhere all oh and i saw licorice pizza which was also great that was last year i okay i didn't see it but you saw i was gonna say but you saw it this year (laughs) yeah yeah no it's it's in that twilight period that i'm always like i don't i don't know if this is a 2021 or a 2022 release yeah, it was released Christmas, so I'll give you that. Yeah, I, I think that every year I always put like a Christmas release on the next year's uh, like end of the year countdown where I'm like, look, if you release a movie at Christmas, I can't in good conscience say that it came out that year. It's like a season. It's not a it's not a time. It's not a day. It's a yeah. it's a it's a non time. It's a non space. Um like everything, everywhere, all at once, actually, which I really love. <laughs> I love Michelle Yeoh. I will watch her. Yeah, she's do amazing. Anything. Everyone in this movie was great. There were moments that I was like, "What?" I was like, "Oh my god, the hot dog hands." I don't want to spoil it for you, Allie. So I'll just say the hot dog hands almost lost me. What? But only in the sense that I was like, uh, it, it came back around. Okay. Um, I will say that what I really like is that the villain, I guess, if we want to say that in this one, has the same motivation as the villain of Justice League Crisis on Two Earths, the DC animated movie that I would recommend over the Batman if if you've got HBO (laughs) uh, Max and you're like, I want to watch a movie that has Batman in it. I would say that one over uh, the Batman, but... It has a very similar sort of like nihilism theme, which is always something that I enjoy in my uh, sort of, it's not superhero media, not by a long shot, but sort of like absurdist super realism media. I found it very similar to superhero plotting. I mean, not only because uh, it touches on the same multiverse stuff that like superhero media is addicted to right now because you could cram so many cameos and Easter eggs into shit and people like fucking lose their minds over it. But uh, just the idea that she was pulling skills from different versions of herself made her like a superhuman being. When <laughs> when I first saw the trailer for this before Licorice Pizza, and I, I had said this to a friend of mine who actually was like, I thought the same thing. At first, I thought they were remaking The One, starring Jet Li. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're, so, my Similar buddy premise. Key and I are not the only people in the world who remember that movie existing. I reviewed it for the website not that long ago. Just I think I bought it on DVD at like a Goodwill. And um, I enjoyed it more than its reputation um, seems to imply that I should have. Uh, <laughs> I certainly really liked it when I saw it. I saw it in theaters. Uh, oh, so. my God. 
Wow. Yeah, I remember cred. having fun. New Metal Street cred right there. Yeah. You're a real fan. A real one. Not like us fake fans. That movie's New Metal soundtrack goes so hard because it like it uses the uh, disturbed oh, wah, ah, ah, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, thing. Yeah. It uses that as like a uh, drop so that like every time something cool happens, they play it again on the soundtrack over and over again during this one fight scene. Uh, so it's not just at the beginning of the song. It's like punctuating these like fists to the face and stuff. Very silly. Uh, <laughs> I kind of enjoyed it. It's a very dumb movie. But everything everywhere actually has like a heart to it, though, by comparison. The musical score or the musical motif at its core is a story of a girl by nine days, <laughs> which I love because, you know, I, I'm sitting in the theater. And I was like, oh, my God, he's saying nine days lyrics. And there's only like, you know, one or two people in the theater at that time who recognize it and give it like a little bit of a chuckle. And then it like, you know, it plays again later in different places. And I was like, yeah. This knows where I live. That went over my head, to be honest. I read about it later. I, I didn't. I didn't oh, it in real time. Oh well, I know. I know that song by heart, and <laughs> especially whenever you know his character saying, you know, uh, your clothes never wear as well the next day, and your hair never falls in quite the same way. In my mind, I immediately was like, you know, I was already there. I was. I was. I was like, <laughs> oh. This is the story of a girl. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then the last thing I watched, and I'm sorry, I know that we're pretty late already. Uh, Matt and I have watched the first three seasons of Fargo. And I kind of look back and see that there's, I, I actually have a lot of big gaps in my Cohen brothers watching where like, there are big ones that I have actually not seen. Like I've never seen blood simple. You know, I haven't seen like the lady killers or a simple man, but like it kind of seems like I probably, you know, should see Miller's Crossing, especially since Fargo has so many references to the Coen Brothers larger filmography. Um, I, it, it is sort of like an Easter egg hunt in there, but like it's the most absurd one because it's like, you know, it's not like you're trying to figure out who Howard the Duck is in this like, you know, Marvel movie. It's like, oh, this scene is basically like a recreation of one of the bowling scenes from the big Lebowski or, uh, you know, a character accidentally quotes like, uh, you know, sometimes there's a man. Well, sometimes there's a man. Like, so there are large parts of their filmography that I have not seen. And Matt has also not seen large parts of them. So I kind of thought this summer we would go through them chronologically, but when the time came, I did not want to start with blood simple. So we watched raising Arizona, which is my favorite oh, still. Yes. Oh, so good. I love that movie. It was one of the first DVDs I owned. I bought it. I didn't buy it. I won it at a raffle at boarding school where I bought eight tickets because that was like the biggest prize. And it was for a talent show that was not very well done. No offense to my high school classmates. Uh, one of you, your skill was walking across the stage with a hammer. But, <laughs> uh, you know, Raising Arizona is such a great movie. And I think that because it was one of the first DVDs I owned, I kind of watched it until I was sick of it. Which, you know, also happened with The Big Lebowski when I was in high school. And so it's probably been seven or eight years since the last time I saw it. And it, it was like a whole new world again. You know, Holly Hunter, always a delight. Nicolas Cage giving what I think is like, in my opinion, like one of his top 
seven best performances, which sounds like a big number to have as a list at the top, but he's given hundreds and hundreds. And he's one of the best actors alive. Yeah. If not the best. Yeah. I I think you might be right. Um, I mean, I 100%, I've said this like multiple times, so I totally agree, Brandon. And this was in his early charming period, too. This was like Moonstruck, Moonstruck and like yeah. Valley Girl, Nick Cage, which is like some of the best Cage out there. Oh, I agree. He was a real cute dirtbag in his early years. I love, it's Holly Hunter, I think. Everybody always talks about Nicolas Cage or, you know, John Goodman. And Holly Hunter in this one, she's so good. It's not just her lines about like, turn to the right and all of that. It's, you know... There's so much good stuff. The the all of High's like internal monologue, it's so unnecessarily verbose and delightful and like really sort of belies this assumption about, you know, oh he's a he's a stick up man who can't stop sticking up the same place over and over again. But you know, he's not dumb. He's just, he's got a bad, he's been dealt a bad hand and has poor impulse control. Well, let me ask you a question about Raising Arizona that's on my mind right now, because next episode, I uh, wanted us to talk about romantic Nick Cage movies when I'm meeting with James and Hannah and Brittany. There's a lot of different versions of Nick Cage that you can still see in movies, but I feel like there aren't a lot anymore where you're supposed to find him like romantically or sexually desirable. Right, and uh, I thought Raising Arizona might be a good pitch for that one, just because they are so dedicated to each other that they're willing to commit crimes. But I couldn't remember how cute you're supposed to find him in the movie. I think that you do find him very endearing. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, as well. It's on par with Moonstruck, because I think part Whoa. of the thing, part of the thing in Moonstruck is that he's very unstable. But it's a hot, unstable, but he's it's a volatile, a, like yeah. It's a, a you know, it's a, it's it's spicy. It, it has, yeah. it has an element of you know, <laughs> danger. But I don't mean you know, in a very manageable, <laughs> non-threatening kind of way. At least as far as I remember from Moonstruck. Whereas in this one, he's a criminal, and there is a great deal of devotion. But I don't. I think the the pairing of the mustache with the perpetually unkempt, straight up and down Doc Brown hair. I don't <laughs> think you're supposed to necessarily find him very sexy, romantic, not sexy. I mean, look, I'm not going to say not sexy. I just don't know <laughs> if you're supposed to find him sexy. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know if. They're trying to make him unsexy with those particular choices. Like there is, there's one scene I always laugh at it every time, where he like gets out of bed in his boxers, and they're just like the boxiest, least. Yes. They're just like it's you know, it's the least the sexy underwear boxers. has ever been. Yeah. They're just big, you know. They're at the waistband. They you know. They're like bachelor boxers, where it's like he's probably had those since before his first time in prison. And they're just like completely blown out, except at the elastic. Uh, So I don't know. Take from that what you will. (laughs) But yeah, uh, that's it for me, Brandon. What have you been watching? Man, I've been very just distracted lately. Uh, Like I said, doom scrolling. I've had some like home renovation hiccups. 
And uh, it's also been two weeks of Jazz Fest. I just went to see Erica Badu yesterday, drinking champagne in the sunshine. Um, so I'm very, like, <laughs> just kind of distracted with life right now and not watching a lot. And when I do, it's, like, very low intelligence, just stuff that can wash over me without me thinking. Like, it feels like the kind of movie that you normally see on cable in the middle of the afternoon. Like, I watched yeah. the Spider-Man European Vacation movie. I watched the new Roland Emmerich movie where the moon falls down, <laughs> and I watched uh, <laughs> and I watched the mermaid movie with uh, Effie from Skins that was supposed to come out in 2015, but came out this year because oh they uh, didn't have money for the effects. Like I've just been watching a lot of bullshit. I love that for you, though. Huh. <laughs> I feel like this is going back to Swamp Flick's roots in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I'm regressing for sure. What did you think of uh, Twink Spider-Man's European Vacation? It was kind of like the perfect Marvel experience where like I had very low stakes interaction with it. Um, I was like, this is kind of fun. I, I, I watched a lot of the setup fully engaged and like I enjoyed an actor I appreciate, Jake Gyllenhaal in his like, they give him something to do in the movie. Like he's not just there. And then, you know, by the time I got to the big battle at the end, I had finished my takeout burrito and I started kind of fading out um, and falling asleep during it. And an explosion would wake me up every now and then, which I feel like is kind of my ideal Marvel interaction and kind of the ideal Hollywood bullshit I've been watching <laughs> lately. Uh, I watched the uh, the Moonfall one like in the middle of the afternoon a lot more alert and I had a very similar experience. It's like, I could take a nap right now and not miss much. So I don't know. It was fine. Uh, I'm going to watch the, you know, Spider-Man Answers the Speed Force follow-up um, <laughs> soon, whenever that comes in at the library. I did see one solid new release that's a little more interesting. It's called Vengeance is Mine, All Others Pay Cash. Okay. Very provocative title. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a Giallo title, <laughs> if I've ever heard one. Yeah, it's a full sentence, which, you know, is always a good Giallo touch. Uh, it's It's an Indonesian film. And it premiered at, like, TIFF and Locarno last year, so it's kind of festival acquisition uh, for Netflix. And it's one of those movies that's, like, very good and very interesting, and you wouldn't know it exists unless you wrote down its title during its film festival coverage, because Netflix did zero promotion for it. It is, at first glance, like a retro throwback to, like, late 80s martial arts cinema from, I want to say, like, the Hong Kong market, like... The main lead actress, she's styled to be kind of like a throwback to, like, Cynthia Rothrock. So she, like, throws punches just as hard as the guys and, like, uh, kicks ass without any questions about, like, her gender. And she falls in love with this guy who loves to start street fights. He is impotent. He's been sexually impotent his entire adult life. So uh, he likes to prove his masculinity by starting fights. Any any opportunity he has to throw fists, he does. And the two of them, these two, like, brawlers, cross paths. And it stops being this, like, martial arts, like, beat-em-up throwback to, like, the late 80s. And ends up being this, like, really sweet romance that, like, spans decades. Where, like, he didn't think he was lovable because he's impotent. And she's like, I don't care. I want to marry you. And... I don't know, because of that, like, it centers her sexual pleasure in a way that's very interesting for, like, such a macho genre. And then, you know, there are all these other complications about, like, 
if people will allow them to be at peace. Like the the romance is very sweet and very cute in this like kind of indie rom com kind of way. But then there's all these like bad actors. Like there's all these like ex lovers of hers who are jealous and like how could she you know spurn me for this like guy who can't even get it up. And then there's like these politicians who want to use his willingness to get into you know fights and like hurt people as like a way to like further their corruption and like get back at their enemies and there's a ghost that pops up somewhere in the third act i don't know the oh, whole thing's wow. like very low-key like it reminds me of like karismaki or something it's like just very like unrushed and not trying to like wow you all the time but um it's it's got a sweet romance in it and some like actually good melodrama about how that romance pans out and then it's all, got all these like vintage choreographed fist fights but it's not as macho as that makes it sound I don't know. I really liked it. So wait, wait. Can you say the title again? <laughs> Vengeance is mine. All others pay cash. <laughs> okay. Because this sounds exactly like something I would love. I, w- I think you would really like it. Yeah. It, it's just something you have to like be patient with. Because um, it starts off with like so many fights that you're like, wow, this is going to be an all-out action brawl. But like you especially, I know you get into like romantic melodrama as a genre I and it really both, plays into that i love yeah both action bras and melodramas this like i said this sounds perfect and ghosts ghosts are great <laughs> yeah and i don't even want to play that up too much it's almost like it's just as matter of fact like and then one of these characters that um pops up in the end i don't even know if it's technically a ghost i would love to read an indonesian critic like break down what that character is but it's definitely otherworldly and the way it interacts with the characters is like and there's like a billion different kinds of ghosts in exactly so who knows Shortly after taking heroin, users report that they can feel a rush of euphoria, dry mouth, and a warm flushing of the skin. There is relief from pain and anxiety. Arms and legs often feel unnaturally heavy. The body temperature increases. The mouth becomes parched, and people often feel nauseous and vomit. The heart rate slows or is regular. Breathing will also slow down, and a person goes into a dreamlike state, falling in and out of consciousness. Uh, I was just talking about how I've been watching a lot of like vapid Hollywood action movies lately because I've not been able to focus on things. Um, I did pick a particularly bad programming choice uh, for that mindset, but it's good to push yourself, and I'm, I'm glad that we watched this movie today. It's called Arabato from 1979, which translates to Rapture. It is on the Criterion channel right now because it was recently restored by Altered Innocence, who is my personal favorite film distribution label. Yeah, they're really they're really killing it. They're amazing. They they did The Wild Boys, which is like my favorite film of the 2010s, possibly my lifetime, and they did Knife and Heart, Knife and which Heart, is Boomer's yeah. favorite. Yeah, again, uh, the things you said, but about this. And they also did the uh, porno that we watched on this show a while back that I sent to you in the mail, Equation to an Unknown. They restored and... I'm still waiting to well. hear from HR. <laughs> <laughs> there is not a lot of accountability in this company of <laughs> one. <laughs> I guess I'll get around to that complaint about myself. Uh, <laughs> but this, this Altered Innocence restoration is pretty incredible. Like The movie looks very sharp and colorful and vivid um and it is a film that 
should be spoken about in the same breadth as at least, you know, early David Lynch movies or maybe um, George Romero's Martin is a movie that has like a lot of like cult following cred. Um, and this is like a contemporary of those films. It's, it's a Spanish movie, but it just doesn't have as much vocal support or like appreciation, I think, from like cult movie aficionados. Except for Pedro Almodovar, who says this is his favorite movie ever made, and might have dubbed one character in the film. An unconfirmed rumor, but if you hear that, you know exactly what character it was dubbed, because it's extremely oh my obvious. God. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was gonna... Okay, that's good to know. Because I was like, am I losing my mind? No, it's a very silly vocal performance, um, to the point where they weren't trying to hide it. The character just sounds ridiculous, and you have to deal with that. Okay, so what is it? It's from 1979, and it's made by a bunch of people who are on heroin and make movies. And it's about a bunch of people who are on heroin and make movies. Uh, it's, it's got a meta quality in that way. In the film, there's a professional filmmaker who has been making B-movie schlock um, in Spain, making you know movies about vampires and werewolves that... He doesn't really believe in. Hombres lobos. <laughs> he tries to make them like arty in the editing room by just like playing with the effects, but without any real motivation for like why he's doing this stuff. He's just like, I don't know, make it look weird. I don't really care. It's just completely like disengaged with his filmmaking job. But through a fuck buddy slash drug friend, uh, he meets her weird cousin. <laughs> This is a great movie about a weird cousin. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> if you ever had a weird cousin or know somebody with a super weird cousin, this movie kind of captures that energy. Wait, was not everyone currently on this call the weird cousin? Yeah. If no one came to mind, then you are the weird cousin. Yeah, I am the weird cousin. Same. <laughs> so this weird cousin is also a filmmaker, but he is a lot more passionate about his work, even though it is completely incoherent. Uh, he likes to take heroin and film the same small objects and moments and just surroundings in this like sort of like rural estate over and over and over again on these like eight millimeter strips of film that he cuts up by hand instead of having this expensive editing equipment he's just like doing real DIY filmmaking like making these Stan Brackage style experimental works on his own and through heroin and through this like film camera, he is trying to create rapture. He's trying to create this like transcendent experience that captures what he feels on drugs and amplifies it through the medium of cinema and like triggering something in the audience so they can feel this like otherworldly euphoria he's getting um, by making the stuff. And he is finding this impossible. <laughs> He can mesmerize people with drugs and by, like, tapping into, like, childhood nostalgia, uh, particularly has these, like, objects that are, like, old toys. So he can, like, get someone on drugs and looking at a toy from their childhood and they feel this, like, rapturous transcendence. But he can't translate that to movies and it's really frustrating him. The only person who finds his work interesting is this professional filmmaker who I think just really likes the heroin hookup at first, but then really gets more and more involved with this weirdo cousin's art um, and starts to see something in it, even though it's not fully coming to fruition. And I want to say the last like 40 minutes 
are when he reaches a new breakthrough. The weirdo cousin uh, starts filming himself while sleeping in these like automatedly stepped intervals with this like camera timer that like steps the frame instead of just filming constantly because you would run out of that eight millimeter strip pretty quickly. But by filming himself sleeping and like uh, playing back these loops, he uh, starts to see these frames that are red and growing. More and more of his sleep patterns are being taken over by this like bright red light. And he's convinced that that is the moment of rapture. Um, and he's like pushing more and more towards like oblivion with these like heroin induced sleep episodes that are like filmed for his own viewing pleasure. And it draws the filmmaker in more and more while he is also the professional filmmaker is also arguing with his girlfriend who, you know, their dual addiction to heroin has completely ruined their relationship. And they they become increasingly abusive towards each other, having this like really nasty fallout end of their romantic life together fight while the guy is fixated on these movies and on, you know, getting as high as possible without dying. This movie is pretty heavy and pretty elusive, but I think it really taps into what I love about movies in that it does feel like there is this like poetic transcendence that you can reach through the medium at its best. And it's super hard to do and pinpoint and talk about. And when it happens, it's so beautiful, and there's like few other art forms that can compare. Uh, I think music is another one that you know can trigger this like euphoric internal experience. But when you try to tell someone else about what music does to you, it falls apart in language. Um, and like you, if you play your favorite song for somebody else, it's hard for them to like reach that headspace uh, the way that you felt it. And like I feel a lot of the frustration in translating how a movie affects you to someone else and like trying to trigger that emotional response to them. Um, I thought, I thought this movie was like really reaching for something there, but you also have to read a lot into what it's doing because everyone who made it was incoherent and on drugs. Um, so it's like both <laughs> documenting something real and reaching for something supernatural at the same time. I, I really, really liked it. I wonder if y'all had a, a similar experience, um, being impressed by its willingness to like reach beyond the material world, or if you just find it kind of sloppy and uninteresting, which is a criticism I've seen leveled against it as well. I think it can be sloppy and also interesting. And I think that was more like my takeaway. I also think, you know, as heavy as the movie does get in some ways, I don't think I was able to like really take it very seriously because you know, we have this weird cousin expounding upon the nature of rapture and, like, specifically, like, dosing people's drugs to get to this point. And you see them at this point, and they're just staring at toys. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just think, to me, like, that's so ridiculous and just, like, kind of funny. And it's so, like, you know, it's like being the sober person at a party, you know? <laughs> you, like, walk in the room and you're like, what's going on, guys? <laughs> that woman has been staring at that Betty Boop doll for 45 minutes, and I cannot yeah, tell exactly. why she's so fixated on it, but she's having a blast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, there were those moments, and then I think once it really started getting, you know, it goes from you're watching these people just doing drugs for fun and escape, and then to the point where it's like actually the addiction happening. And that's when you really start to feel like 
the movie getting real sinister and you get like the red on the camera and you get he and his girlfriend just like shooting up and fighting with each other like I think there's like a shift in the movie that happens that you can see that is more like it seems more like about how addiction can suck you away even if this was made by people on heroin so I had a really bizarre relationship with that particular element of this movie because last weekend we were out and about because we were going to go to a couple of errands and there was a garage sale in my neighborhood where they were selling a vintage 1971 Fisher Price Little People two-door house, like a Tudor-style two-story house that I had when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. You got raptured. I did. And I saw it, and I was immediately, I, I immediately grabbed it. Like, immediately. And Kat was like, who is that for? And I mentioned, like, you know, my cousins, whose wedding I went to recently, she has a two-year-old. I was like, oh, you know, it could be for, and, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to dox these children, but I, I was like, it could be for brother's child or cousin's child and then later in the day i was just like had it on my table and i was staring at it and i i looked at matt and i said i think this might have been for me and he was like yeah i know and (laughs) inside of it there was like a ziploc bag that had like the little people who had come with the house and there's one that's like you know they're like clothing is yellow and he has a little red hat on and i was like that's mark which is um you know me like that was the me that i had that lived in that house when i was a child i'm looking at it right now like it's directly to my right at the top of my liquor cabinet and it's directly next to my spider plant that i have like a spotlight grow light on so i'm looking at it right now and it's like you know it's like looking at it from across you know a field but also like across time and i completely understand that like actually it can transport you like that's sort of the power of nostalgia and a lot of times that power of nostalgia is what is employed in these films to generate a sense of like this you know familiarity and positivity in the rhetorical space that you're in with the film and i think that that's part of the trap like part of what's being said here is like the feelings that you get when you're watching a film they're a trap (laughs) you're not having a euphoric experience you're actually having a harrowing one it's just like being you know blissed out and being eaten by like a pitcher plant you know yeah, no one's having a good time in this movie. Um, even as they get closer and closer to that ecstatic truth, like they're just being drained of their life. I mean, this is like a not quite vampire movie. Uh, like I said, like Martin came to mind earlier. Just like the problem is usually there's like one metaphor for that. Like in Martin, it is like a heroin movie, and in this one, it's that. And movies are also a vampire and nostalgia as a vampire like everything just drains these people could you say the world is a vampire? <laughs> yeah yeah but it feels like unavoidable to get like sucked into that orbit once you're introduced to it and you're right like he introduces the toys as a way of explaining what he's doing like it's like the nostalgia with the toy for them to get fixated on is not the ultimate goal he's like okay, this is the kind of thing I'm trying to do. Uh, let's do it more than that. <laughs> he like really steps it up with like movies. 
uh, and with the drugs to the point where people are, you know, snorting heroin out of the carpet and uh, filming themselves almost 24-7 and uh, dragging their, like, barely alive bodies across the city to get just reels and reels of uh, film developed with, like, basically nothing on it. Because <laughs> the ritual is just, like, so self-perpetual. And then having, like, the people at the film counter, like, look at them. Oh, my God. <laughs> this fucking guy again. Uh-huh. <laughs> I also... um like the fact that he meets this weird cousin with the drug hookup and decides, you know what? You should, like, his girlfriend, you should come with me to meet my friend's weird cousin. Yeah. And she's just like, why aren't we filming? Yeah. It's a self-destructive <laughs> impulse for sure. He knows yeah. it's bad. The energy's not good over there, but he keeps getting drawn to it. I don't know if it's like a uh, just an altered innocence expectation, but like it's so funny how often these characters get drawn together in these like CD scenarios and you're fully prompted to expect a sex scene. Yeah. There's so many times when I was like, are they going to kiss or not? <laughs> but the movie like is kind of how about heroin and I guess movie addiction just zaps that out of you. Like there's like placeholders for where the sex would be. Um, I, yeah. I guess there's that one bisexual hookup in the elevator with the, uh, the poppers. Um, but other than that, like <laughs> when the characters would have sex, they just do drugs instead and just zone out. But yeah, I just kept expecting like, especially like gay sex out of this movie and not getting any of it. Yeah. And the women in this movie have kind of a weird place of do what these weird artists tell you to do and, you know, kind of be quiet or be a mom. It's not even like you're here to like have sex it's literally just like you are here <laughs> to experience movies and be quiet which i yeah it's so like male artist i felt like they were like an option of vitality that the two men were not taking like oh yeah yeah the cool cousin who has very like shelly long energy <laughs> yeah and coins it's the, coins the term hollow cinema which is great yeah <laughs> yes she, you know, is just out there to be a hedonist and like, let's do drugs and then go have fun or let's hook up or like, let's, you know, dance around and watch weird movies with my kooky aunt. And, you know, she's like Eat lively. <laughs> and then the um, girlfriend that he's like breaking up with in slow motion, she's like, let's do something. Let's go make a movie. Let's drop acid. Let's make a baby. Like, she's just like listing these like activities <laughs> that they could be doing instead of watching this weirdo's art films and he's just like not taking the bait so to me like the two men fixating on each other is like very self-destructive and like insular and these women are like trying to drag them out of it and they're not having it like they're like too too uh determined to self-destruct for anyone to save them i want to talk about how much i loved when it really started to blur reality because there comes a point where you know they're watching it and there's no possible way that, like, Pedro could have known how they were going to sync or not sync what they were watching to his audio tape. But, like, it flashes red, and then he says, did you see that red flash? Oh, like, yeah. Like, it's not, <laughs> like, even even before the camera starts to turn on Cool Cousin, right before she gets, you know, blipped out of existence. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, there's like a real eerie like break with reality late in the film. It's kind of like 
tempting to not call this a horror movie because there's no like killer on the loose and like you just said like the worst that really happens to people is like it just blipped out and don't exist anymore. Do we think that's supposed to be like a metaphor for overdosing? I have no idea what that camera's up to. It, it feels like it's just like absorbing them into its camera world. You know, like capturing an image, but like in a very literal way. Like she's like fully captured into the camera now. I think it's interesting because since this movie, you know, it's 50 years old? No, 40 years old at this point. I, you know, a couple years ago when I watched that, like, you know, true crime documentary that like wasn't very good but that i thought was like very fascinating for how much it like incorporated the social media of the like murder victims you know her social media and how that like basically provided them with enough footage to completely fill out the movie's entire runtime that this is this kind of seems to be at least a little bit about like an obsessive need with like self-obsession as evidenced by an obsessive need to self-document. Yeah. And I think that was very real with the director. Like a lot of those home movies that the cousin was making Uh are actual like eight millimeter footage that that director was just filming all the time. So he had all these like scraps of like short films, but nothing really to show for it. Um, And he like kind of strung them together with this like larger narrative. So presumably he was like out there just like capturing tons and tons of like observational images from his like daily life and uh, becoming obsessed with that process, but without ever doing anything coherent with it until this. And I think if you talk to like anybody who's been interested in filmmaking or like becomes a filmmaker, like they're very much interested in just capturing the world, like what's around Like, I know before I went to film school, it was just, like, very into it. And then, you know, you go to film school and you're like, oh, film people, I'll just talk about movies and watch them instead. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you rather work with uh, in film school? The the DIY artist with the bedroom cut and paste or the uh, professional guy who um, (laughs) does not care about his work and just treats it like a job? Uh, the professional guy probably has a better craft service table. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. And probably won't keep you on an overnight shoot. <laughs> I would want to work with that guy who shows up at the beginning outside of the editing room and is like, it's time to go home because yeah, it's the weekend. That That's who I want to work with. But if I have to choose from, you know, I would probably prefer to work with Pedro just because I don't know. I ha- I feel like I have a lot of practice dealing with like man children in the arts from college uh he's not an archetype that's incredibly unfamiliar to me but yes having worked with both the diy person and the professional person you know the diy people are always going to be more interesting to talk to and are always going to like have more to say even if their movie turns out crappy in the end or don't turn out at all you'll, you'll meet people who've been yeah, working on a movie for 30 35 years and never actually yeah exactly do anything with all that raw footage but you know the professional people you're gonna get home on time and you're gonna be fed so you know it's a uh, depends on uh what you're feeling god what do you think the heroin <laughs> budget was on this movie oh god <laughs> oh oh no 
I honestly don't know how they got anything usable. Just if that was their daily routine to like, okay, we're going to get high, shoot a little bit, um, and then, you know, we'll take a break and get high again. Like, it's incredible that this finished product exists. The director is like mostly known for making poster art. Like, he did posters for like the Spanish releases of Buñuel's films. And he did a lot of Almodovar's early stuff. And, like, as a visual artist, that makes a lot of sense, like, that he would be able to keep that professional rhythm going. Where, like, you have your, like, moments of coherence where you work on something, and then you can kind of just go nod off on your own time. But, like, to run a shoot with, like, actors and a crew, it's incredible that this finished product is still being <laughs> distributed because <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of other people on heroin who tried to make a movie and no one ever saw it because it just didn't come to completion. I like how, you know, given that and their schedule and all of that, I like how the movie kind of keeps a lot of night and day, like ambiguous in like inside spaces. Like yeah. you have yeah. no idea what time it is until like a window is opened or somebody goes outside. Like you have no idea. <laughs> While our POV character keeps nodding off and then waking up and restarting the audio tape. So, like, very unclear how long of a span of time this is. Like, is he sleeping for, like, 20-minute increments? Or is he, like, losing time for, like, 13 hours at a time and just, like, starting the routine again as he tries to listen to the messages and, like, watch the reels of film to get further into this uh, backstory? Could be days, could be hours. It's really unclear. See, to me, I feel like it all happens over the course of one night. Like, I, I know that there's no reason for me to, like, fight for this, but I, I just think it's more interesting and fun if, like, really everything that we see in the framing device takes place over the course of a single evening. Like, he leaves the office, he gets back to his apartment where he has not been, the landlord tells him that his girlfriend is back and gives him this package. And then they have this like harrowing, horrible night of like fighting and then trying to make up and then fighting and then trying to make up and fighting and trying to make up. And it all happens between sundown and sunup when he opens those blinds again and everything else that happens like temporaneously only like there's so much more story there's so many evenings and stories of days and stories of nights and filming of days and filming of nights and the passage of time but it's all happening in flashback whereas the rest of it take like the actual framing device is just one night like i think that's more interesting and i also think it relates more to like the way that pedro has a lot of trouble initially like figuring out the timing of his work like specifically that he tries to time his films to the pace of his heart initially or which i assume is kind of literal and metaphorical like that his his pace is erratic and instead of keeping time like a metronome as he like manually winds this camera uh it goes the pace of his heart and that's why his films are so disjointed and so i think that that's like actually what's happening within the movie proper as well I like the idea that it's all in one night, too, because it captures that feeling of uh, having a late night argument where the two people should definitely just go to bed, sleep on it, calm down, and, like, come back later. But instead, they just argue and argue and argue to the point where, like, they don't even know what they're saying anymore. They're just, like, two agitated animals uh, pushing each other around. 
that like 3 a.m. argument where both people should go to bed and sober up before continuing. Uh, I feel like the movie captures that pretty well. Yeah. And then they start making very erratic decisions, like when she decides that she's going to do a Betty Boop strip tease as a way of like calming the man down <laughs> uh, while he's trying to watch his uh, experimental art films and pay no attention to her. She's like tries to draw his attention back in a way that like he does not care about sex. He does not care about you. He doesn't care about anything but drugs and these like terrible films. <laughs> nothing you can do is going to pull him out of that sinkhole. I like a lot of movies that feel like they're made of scraps and feel like they're pulling something bigger out of small images. Like this movie's got a lot of pop art iconography with that Betty Boop stuff, both the doll and the striptease. And then the director like goes on these drives around uh, Madrid where he looks at all the marquees of movies playing. Yeah. So you see those different horror movies and there's like Superman poster because i guess the richard donner movie would have been playing around that time and then back at the apartment you know he has his bunuel poster that you know the director designed uh with a spider-man mask hanging over it i saw that it's a lot of like pop art kind of iconography hanging around and then you know his own home movies that he made before he ever decided to do a narrative feature that like strung them all together and then the two timelines, like you have this argument and then you have this other whole weird thing with the cousin that's like so separate from reality and what anyone else is talking about. I just really respond to generally movies that are messy and then use that messiness as a way to try to encompass everything that the director has to say about life and like himself and then also tries to reach for something bigger than that, like... I'm trying to think of a good multimedia movie. Like uh, we talked about Suicide Club for movie of the month once. Like I feel like that's a very messy movie with all these like disparate parts that tries to reach for yeah. something bigger. Like I usually respond to that kind of thing. It made me think of Targets actually, because I was wondering if the footage in the film was like stuff that the director had previously made. And it sounds like you're confirming that. And I was thinking about yeah. the Peter Bogdanovich film Targets where Bogdanovich was, you know, given that instruction by Roger Corman that he had to include this, like, footage of Bela Lugosi. Uh, Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, you're right. I'm sorry, Boris Karloff for, that he had uh, previously filmed for something else. But then Lugosi's a good example, too, because Ed Wood did that in Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Where he, like, used and these, like, Glenn scraps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm always impressed by that. For our listeners, we would be remiss if we did not point out that the original un sold uh, pilot for the original Star Trek series, The Cage, was later cut up and used in the two-parter, The Menagerie, during the series oh, proper. Oh, yeah! Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. I don't have my bell. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so you're going to add it in post this time. I'm, I see I how this not. works. No, this is a very authentic podcast. <laughs> I was going to say, we're, we're messy here. I don't do any we're editing real magic. We're full of scraps. <laughs> Another thing that feels like a disparate disconnect is like once they hit that rhythm with him recording himself sleeping that feels separate from the rest of like the momentum of the film it almost feels like an old-fashioned ghost story in the way that i was saying like devil's backbone has that like classic ghost literature tradition something about like how he films himself sleeping every night and then like there's these slight changes that get worse and worse and worse and there's like a final confrontation. The rhythm of that storytelling feels like an old ghost story to me. Yeah, and the I mean, really there's even, you know, newer movies that'll do that same thing. Like 
paranormal activities literally yeah yeah filming waiting then you got the ghost yeah book of shadows blair witch 2 i guess the difference is this one has literal found footage in it yeah like it's like actual authentic found footage in the narrative where like those two movies will have to like stage theirs the director had some like banked from his personal collection so was this an overall positive experience? This movie's been very divisive from what I can tell uh, since the restoration. Like, you're either mesmerized by it or you're just kind of like, why isn't this more coherent? I wanted to say that when he started filming himself sleeping is where I started to lose interest a little bit. It became kind of repetitive at that point in a way that I didn't find to be like a, necessarily a rhetorical choice. But it did feel like listening to a story at a party being told by a heroin addict. (laughs) Yeah. But the payoff is so good and so creepy, though. Like, I don't know. I guess everything comes to be so still that, like, once the camera moves on its own, it, like, brought something out of me. Like, it, it, like, raised the little hairs on my arm. Yeah. In a way that, like, I don't know. I I just didn't expect anything, like, supernatural to come that late in the film. Uh, It really creeped me out in a really genuine way. Yeah, I hate inanimate objects moving on their own, like, that aren't (laughs) supposed to. So, yeah. I mean, Roomba's okay, fine. But, like, this scenario, nope. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it did lose me in some parts, but mostly, yeah, I would say mesmerized is a good word for it. I think, you know, once I got to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to, like, hand myself over and be the sober person at the party and watch this movie (laughs) and go for the ride. (laughs) It it got more enjoyable. There's one point where he just says a bunch of druggy nonsense where he's like, (laughs) oh yeah, baby, you've heard about the blow by blow, but there's no blow like the sex, the sex blow, the sex, sex. It's like, what? Not a bit of that made sense. I don't think he's supposed to be cool in that moment either. He's like, yeah, no. Is that I, the part where he like intentionally hooks his girlfriend on heroin just yeah. to get her to not talk as much? Yeah, not a cool move. Agreed. I don't, I don't think either of these people are like aspirational, no. even if the director's like reflecting something about his own work and like his own art style in the two of them. It's not a vanity project in any way. It's not like look how cool my like druggy art making lifestyle is. It's like. Look how like self-destructive my routine is, and I cannot break out of it. Yeah. Um, and he eventually did die pretty young, which is very sad. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that it wasn't um, annoying. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like uh, I, I have read a few. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously talking about letterboxed mutuals. That's not what I'm saying out loud. I've seen a few letterbox mutuals complain about it being not as good as maybe the trailer made it look, or like uh, not as interesting as the premise sounds. But I definitely um, can see how even if the movie works for you in a macro level, there's still like moments where it's like, this serves no purpose on its own and we could move it along and uh, skip this part and it wouldn't lose anything. Because, uh, you know, that's the nature of doing drugs while making art. It's never as interesting to other people as it is to you. Or rarely, anyway. That's true. Well, next week on the show, like I said, we're going to talk about Nicolas Cage in his romantic roles. Roles where you either find him sexy or just kind of a general heartthrob. This was definitely 100% an excuse for me to watch Wild at Heart for the first time, which I had not seen before. Um, and then we oh, kind I'm of so spun out from there. Oh, I'm so glad you did. I love that I'm movie. very excited to talk about it. So much. 
And um, also, like we said at the top of the episode, donate to your local abortion fund. And if you live in New Orleans, uh, the link to that specific one is in the show notes. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye. I'm gonna you up.